The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chance Nicholson. Dr. Nicholson joined the Nell Hodgkin Woodruff School of Nursing as an assistant professor in August 2019. He received his PhD from the University of Alabama at Birmingham with a focus on neurophysiology physiological correlations between the vagus nerves, cholinergic pathways, psychiatric comorbidities, and HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders. Dr. Nicholson's research interests and publications center on neurophysiological substrates that form the basis of cognitive behavioral symptoms often observed in trauma-based disorders, in particular post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. And today we're going to talk about heart rate variability. Chance, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. You know, last time you did, you know, such a great job explaining to us inflammation and the link between, anxi- you know, anxiety, depression, and chronic diseases. And I'm going to switch gears today and talk about heart rate variability. It's a term and a measurement that I think we're hearing a little bit more about. Can you first explain what heart rate variability is? Well, I can, I can also say it's, it's not unrelated to the topic we talked about last time, right? So, I mean, we know that pro-inflammatory states can actually have an effect on things like heart rate variability. So we can, we can pin that, and then as we explain kind of what it is, maybe we'll circle back around to inflammation and stress and how that affects it. So you, you talked about consumer um, products, um, you know, and it, it is becoming sort of the a zeitgeist in terms of um, uh, consumerism, uh, you know, Apple watches, um, uh, what is ActiWear, Fitbits. And and the thing is, is that there's, there is a lot of research that supports kind of that, that autonomic health, which is what heart rate variability measures, um, you know, does have some indication of um, general wellness, mortality even. Um, and it, essentially what it's looking at, um, sort of in, in gross terms, is kind of looking at parasympathetic and sympathetic interactions. And when we talk about sort of autonomic health, what we're talking about is, um, again, these, these rest, digest, parasympathetic, or these um, active uh, fight-or-flight states like sympathetic um, activity. So with heart rate variability, what it's trying to do is is model or at least give an indication of what um, a healthy autonomic response to stresses or to the day-to-day life uh, would look like. And that might be that persons that have greater variability in their heart rate or a more erratic, what we would call kind of um, inner beat um, 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 sort of um, I guess heart activity, which seems counterintuitive. We think erratic, we think bad, but really your heart really should be acting sort of erratically or flexible. It should be adaptive. And the more adaptive or the more erratic kind of your, um, uh, you know, the, the different, um, all right. So if you have heart, we think about heartbeats. We think about, you know, normal heart uh, beats. If you go to the doctor's office or, or clinical offices from say 60 to 100, we'll just say. And so, Essentially, what heart rate variability is, is it looks at and, um, the differences between two beats. So, um, you know, heartbeat one, heartbeat two, and it follows along, if people are familiar, kind of with a QRS complex. So you have 
a complex where uh, what most people would know as um, uh, diastole, or when your heart is kind of filling back up, and you've got your systole in which is kind of getting ready to eject um, blood. And this is kind of the, the cardiac you know, cycle, if you will. And when we start looking at um, blood pressure, we start looking at heartbeats. That's one thing. I mean, that, that, that is one sort of idea of what our, um, our autonomic uh, nervous system is up to. So high blood pressure would mean that we probably have some type of stress, be it a chronic inflammatory condition. Um, but then there's also a lot of information that can be had in terms of what's going on between two QRS complexes. And if we can th- imagine a QRS in our head, if we know what those look like, really what we're trying to, to measure is the peak points in the R's. So you've got P, then you've got Q, and you have the R spikes. And the R spikes at the top represent essentially parasympathetic activity, which is what uh, most people are trying to remain in throughout most of the day. You would rather be relaxed throughout most of the day than stressed out. And the more variability you have between two of those R intervals, the more adaptive or the more time really you, you have to process and adjust and respond to stressors. Whereas if you're looking at kind of, um, uh, you know, sympathetic, you're looking sort of maybe along the T waves, kind of these flattened, and you're looking at, at, at what's going on between there, and the less variability, the more stressed out you, ha- you, um, you probably are, the more stress that you're under. So your heart rate may be beating faster. You have less time um, to make decisions, to process, um, to, to decide on an action, because you have to you know, in, in terms of your body, your heart rate's beating fast. It's telling you got to do something now, now, now. Um, and so really what we're trying to do is find the right balance, um, you know, in our day-to-day with autonomic, you know, function. Um, anyway, you were about to say something. And that's really helpful as a description. So this the QRS complex, again, for our listeners, is really your heart beating. So every time your heart beats on an electrocardiogram, we see this QRS complex and from beat to beat, we can measure your heart rate. But if, for example, a person has 60 beats per minute for the heart rate, that doesn't necessarily mean that each beat happened on a one-second interval. One of them could be a 0.9-second heart rate. The other could be a 1.1-second, et cetera, where you're averaging to 60 beats per minute. So there's some variability from the time in between each of the heart beats are occurring Mm -hmm. and as I'm understanding from what you're saying is that variability is a blend of what's going on in our autonomic nervous system Mm -hmm. and that's the part of our nervous system that controls our body functions without us necessarily being aware like Mm -hmm. the rate we breathe our heart rate etc and if we go back to biology when we look at the autonomic nervous system it's made of the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, mm-hmm. or the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, and the balance between the fight or flight and the rest and digest, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic throughout our day is what's affecting our heart rate variability, mm-hmm. right? So if we spend a good part of our day in the more relaxed parasympathetic mode, our heart rate variability is higher because our heart rate's lower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to some degree, or we have more opportunity to have variability if our heart rate's lower. That's probably a more accurate way of saying that. Um, and that is a reflection of an improved well-being state. Is that accurate? 
Right. I mean, so, I mean, again, if we're talking about sort of general heart rate variability, again, a lot of the commercial products um, presumably will be looking at um, things like high frequency. Um, or that's what they're referring to. Um, and so greater variability, um, in essence, means that your, your system is at, at least responding with a normal amount of stress, non-stress, stress, non-stress, as opposed to, um, say, persons, um, say, with major depression or someone with a chronic inflammatory condition, that their um, uh, heart rate variability or their um, day-to-day is going to have this extra load of stress on it that's going to kind of narrow that that variability, the flexibility. It's going to add you know, something in addition to that's going to make it a little bit harder for you to be adaptive to the next stressor that gets maybe thrown at you. So if you think about people as they age, we think about the autonomic nervous system, you know, it, it can't stay in the same health that it, it, it was when we were younger. And you begin to see a lot of um, comorbidities. And those co- comorbidities are just adding another stress block that you're essentially waking up with, walking around with, interacting um, with the world with. So any type of external you know, stressor that comes about anything that's that is stressful to you in nature is 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 going on top of that. Whereas if it's a situation where you're really kind of having stress maintenance, where you are more adaptive to stressors, they're not taking this kind of chronic toll on your system. You're 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 seeing a stressor or you're faced with one and you're dealing with it effectively, at least from an autonomic standpoint. Well, now you have more stress real estate to play in. Now when the next stressor comes you're not overburdened, and you can, and now you can address that stressor. And it actually it, it puts space between it. It's it's where you would, you develop kind of adaptive coping mechanisms. It's where you learn new ways to deal with stress. Um, but again, as we get older, this becomes a bit harder because we're also dealing with with you know physical health stress and things that we may or may not be able to control. Yeah, so that that's really interesting. That because of our baseline amount of activation of our sympathetic nervous system like you said if we're under chronic stress we have chronic activation Mm -hmm. so then when we encounter a new stress there's less variability Mm -hmm. because our baseline is such that there's less space for that variability Mm -hmm. so the lower the heart rate variability tells us that our baseline state Mm -hmm. is one that's already raising our sympathetic nervous system and and stress and that's partly how this measurement is helpful in explaining where we are in terms of our Mm well-being and if we if we think about it kind of from a kind of a biological frame i mean it it does make sense that if you're under a, a great deal of stress that instead of you being able to kind of formulate in that moment or even you know sometime in, in some time scale future new strategies new, new ways of dealing with this problem well that that costs right that costs um, energy it costs resources it costs brain power which is going to be in the immediate an additional stressor you know st- trying to bring everything online to our maximum you know um you know, human, you know, everything that makes us able to solve complex problems, bringing that on is going to serve with the immediate cost of uh, um, cortisol, glucose. And because we're already in that stress prime state, the body can't afford any more, you know, energy expenditure, so to speak. So it says, I'm just going to default back to something I already know that was similar to the stressor, and it's going to respond the same way. Because presumably that same response maybe was 
uh, you survived maybe, you know, and again, remember that uh, sort of on a survival scale or sympathetic nervous system, it, it really kind of functions, at least in the acute form, as more worried about the here and now, and it's less worried about what what this particular behavior does to someone 20 or 30 years down the road. So it's thinking, I have to get out of this situation or I have to not expend energy so that my system doesn't shut down so that I can, you know, live, you know, two weeks, you know, to, to kind of use an extreme kind of version. So it doesn't make any sense for me to worry about or to expend energy on things that may or may not be applicable if I don't make it through this stress. And really the body is interpreting stress. All stress is beginning to kind of load in the same ways. It's all putting the same type of pressure on your physiology. And that's why it's harder to think when we're under stress. It's why we get a lot of anxiety sometimes. It's why sometimes our system responds, sometimes protectively, sometimes not. With depression, it's trying to kind of shut things down so that that the stress doesn't just continue to exert such a toll on us that we do end up developing cardiovascular problems very quickly or GI problems very quickly. That's why, I mean, our system is so adaptive. That's why a lot of us are able to maybe live a bit longer, you know, that combined with innovations in medicine, but why we can, you know, live to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, but we can also track changes in our autonomic nervous system with each one of those decade intervals. It becomes harder and harder to adjust to stress and to maintain the stress real estate, so to speak. So, so that's interesting. So, when we have kind of more room, if you will, in this parasympathetic space where there's more room for variability, in the moment encountered with stress, we can think more flexibly mm-hmm. and come up with new ways to resolve a stressful situation. Whereas, if we are in a state of chronic stress and there's less heart rate variability, we have less room, if you will, to have the energy to respond. So we revert back to how we've always handled something, right. even if it's not necessarily the best way, but it's just what we know. And that's all that we have room and space to do in that moment. Right. And when we're, and we're, we're under a lot of stress, I mean, we, I think we may have touched on this before, but I think it's important is that one thing to keep in mind is our, our brains really are prediction machines. So they like to know what's coming because they have to, to actually mobilize things like, um, you know, your heart and your GI system and your brain to be able to perform the activity that's upcoming. So it likes to be able to know. And when you, f- when you expose yourself to the unknown in a chronically stressed state, then that makes the situation less predictable because you can't take the time to really explore. You can't look at the details. You can't really predict it. So what you do is you make an assumption. You just you just assume that it's something like you've seen in the past and you respond, you know, in, in kind. And, you know, I think we talked about when we're really stressed out, if we'll notice, we, we'll watch reruns. Sometimes we may listen to the same songs. Um, and the reason for that is, is our brain is looking for some type of predictable stimuli if we're going to have it something that that is not going to be you know novel because in a lot of cases novel is great it, i mean it, it we learn we get to explore with novelty but novelty costs in the very immediate and it and, and you do get some some slight pro inflammation when you're exposed to novel situations because you get to learn about it the same this the same sort of peripheral or somatosensory um kind of awareness or feelings or physiology that gives you Uh, anxiety are the same ones that give you excitement, right? And so that's why anxiety may be where you're a situation where this stressor or this novelty is too stressful for your system. So instead you respond with anxiety. I got to get away. I got something's wrong. I have to fix it. 
versus I'm excited about this, right? And so in that case, novelty was rewarding. Whereas for a person who maybe had a, uh, let's say let's say roller coasters in this case, had a phobia for roller coasters, it would not be rewarding for them to be on it. So they're going to avoid it at all costs, and they're just going to act as if this is the worst thing imaginable. Does that make sense? And this shows up in our heart rate variability, particularly when we're exposed to particular stressors. Um, you know, in the consumer market, a lot of what we look at and what, what we, when we talk about general well-being, most of those studies are derived from what we call resting state um, heart rate. It means you're sort of not in the context of an active stressor. So what is your heart doing when basically no one's watching, so to speak? And that's some, it, it's, a, it's kind of a good thing. I mean, there's, it, it certainly can tell us a lot. But then there's a whole lot more that can be told sort of in addition to that if we're looking at what our heart rate variability does in response to an immediate stressor. So um, if it is the case that you're exposed to a stressor and your heart rate variability um, narrows a bit and then, you know, the stressor is over or you've worked through, you know, cognitively or emotionally or whatever the strategy may be, you know, you expect your heart rate variability to go back to a flexible, normal homeostasis if you want to kind of broaden that out, um, you know, within a few minutes. But if it is the case that it takes your heart rate variability, you know, um, 20, 30 minutes, even hours to kind of get back to it, like its most optimal state, then that tells you that your response to stressors is actually not as adaptive as it might need to be. So, so we call that, I mean, if you're going to use the heart rate variability, the most reliable, which is heart rate, um, excuse me, high frequency or respiratory. So we would call that vagal resting and then vagal reactivity which you expect the vagus nerve to kind of get a little bit quieter during the reactive stage so the sympathetic can do its job or it can it can aid the sympathetic nervous system to do its job. And then you've got recovery. So you could call it the three R's, rest, reactivity, recovery. And recovery is also one of those parameters that will tell you a lot how, I mean, as I mentioned, how long it takes you to recover tends to give you some idea about the general health of your autonomic nervous system. Um, persons with PTSD, Will, it will sometimes take them hours, and, and I've seen at least um, in certain studies days for their heart rate variability to recover from a major stressor. So they remain in the most sympathetic state that they could be in for you know the the initial part of that, and they slowly begin to kind of you know become as flexible as they can be, which would still reflect a very constricted heart rate variability, very sympathetically primed state, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, what you really are highlighting is that when we get information from an app, you know, we tend to think of it as one single measurement, like a heart rate variability is a standard measurement. And what you're really pointing out is that there are different ways to take heart rate variability and report that information and all the different ways we slice and dice the measurements taken from heart rate variability tell us different bits of information mm-hmm. um, and one way to really understand your your heart rate variability is to as you said the three r's to look at what it is in a rest condition in reactivity so in a stress situation and then the recovery state from a stress situation you know for a consumer who wants some feedback on you know how they're handling stress um, or you know is it you know, how much of a toll is it taking on their body? Are they feeling, are, you know, a chronic state of stress? Is heart rate variability a helpful measure, or is there, 
a different niche of consumer where this may be something that's useful? Like, who should use it? Who shouldn't? Well, and, and I don't, I don't know if anyone should not use it, and provided that 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 we all understand the potential limitations to it. Um, you know, we were talking before. You know, someone that may have um, a cardiovascular condition that is is um, maybe a conductive disorder. You know, their interpretation of heart rate variability is going to be different than someone who doesn't, right? So as long as, as we can make certain assumptions about general health um, and that we're participating in, you know, what would be predictable or quote-unquote normal activities, that may be the occasional drink, um, maybe the uh, maybe three-day-a-week exercise, maybe less. I mean, but, it, you know, a consistent diet and you're not doing, you know, switching from um, a carnivore diet to all of a sudden a completely vegetarian diet that would cause a bit of chaos in your heart rate variability and your autonomic nervous system during that transition perhaps, then it, it does seem to be at least a general measure of autonomic health. So you can at least glean from it whether or not as a whole your autonomic nervous system is quote-unquote healthy. And again, it, it also depends on what measures that we're talking about. And I emphasize that because there's a lot of measures that some of these commercial products will, will provide that are not necessarily related or relatable to kind of what they may advertise that, that you should be looking at. So I would say that if, if you're a consumer using these, that if you rely on what, what we would call the high-frequency band, um, and, and that should show up, that's kind of a kind of a short-term measure of what we'd call vagus nerve function, which is a good indicator of parasympathetic function, so the rest digest. And... You know, it, it is in some ways, depending on what apps you're using, it sort of is in coordination with your respiratory system. If possible, if you have one of these consumer bands, if you can buy a respiratory band to go with it, that's even better. Because that would at least give you an idea if my respirations are within, say, 9 to 24 breaths uh, yeah, per minute. Then, then you can also look at your uh, high frequency, which again is your vagus uh, vagal tone, and those should be relatable to each other. And so that, that adds kind of a different component because we know that if I take in a deep breath, that my sympathetic nervous system will kick in. And then if I breathe out, you know, my parasympathetic will kick in. Now, again, these are not binary systems, but for the purpose of the conversation, we'll, we'll treat them as such. So knowing how deep my breaths are, how many I'm taking, also give me an indication of how I'm modulating um, my uh, uh, my physiology relative to my environment. So when people say, just take a deep breath, that's exactly what they're talking about. They're telling you, take a deep breath and then exhale that so that we can get a bit more flexibility in our, our heart rate, heart rate variability, so that we can make better decisions, <laughs> right? So if we're stressed out and we're breathing fast, you know, kind of as we would if we were running or getting ready to fight or flight, we don't have the opportunity to make as many good decisions. We're going to make more reactionary decisions. So that breathing component um, is a good thing to kind of keep in mind when you're looking at heart rate variability and as a measure of that. How is my breathing? Am I taking deep breaths? Do I have sleep apnea? Because that would also affect your heart rate variability the same day and the next day. Um, so breath is a, a very important component to this as well. Hey. As you're saying that about taking the deep breath to increase the parasympathetic activity, so if you are faced in a stressful situation, you can actually think and problem solve mm -hmm. rather than um, maybe sometimes say something or do something that you look back and wish you hadn't done. Right. 
if a person is measuring their heart rate variability, so let's say I get an app, I measure mine, um, and even I may even correlate it with my respiratory rate. And let's say I get a number that I really don't like. Like let's say it puts me in a range that it's saying I have low heart rate variability, um, and I want to improve that. Are there techniques or you know different things I can do? For example, you know you hear about meditation. You just mentioned taking deep breaths. Do those practiced on some regular interval make enough of a difference for us to affect our heart rate variability? So they do insofar as, so the, the body learns through action and it learns through context, right? So I believe we talked before that if you're, um, if, if you're taking a, an assessment about your perception of stress when you're not actually in the middle of that stress or you're not anywhere proximal to that stress, that's a, that's a, that's a whole different part of your brain um, essentially, um, than when you're actually in the middle of the stress. So if I'm just going to think about something stressful and then try to work through these kind of behavior techniques, they can get you a little, a little ways, right? But really what you're trying to use with those techniques is a practice them so that you'll use them in the moment. And then when you get to where you can regulate or modulate, say your heart or your breathing within the moment, your, your brain and body begin to learn that, I can now change maybe my strategy. I can change my decision making because, you know, you're giving it time. You're you're giving just. I mean, when we're talking about time, we're talking about you were you know one point one. You were describing earlier and then subseconds. I mean, we're talking about time as as our physiology would define it. But you're putting just enough space in there for maybe the body to make a new prediction, maybe to see something that that is not as triggering or not as upsetting as maybe it. it it, it, it seemed at the time. And one of the examples I'll give when you're really, really stressed out, I think maybe, I don't know if we touched this before, but if we're having an argument, um, and I hope me and you don't have an argument, but, but if we're having an argument and I am so upset because I feel like that maybe you, and I'm just making this up, but that you're mistreating me on this podcast. You're saying, ah, you know, I'm, you're trying to tell me apologetically. Like I, I, that's not my intention at all. You know, if, if that was the case, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sitting there mad and I'm looking for a reason to not change my strategy. So if, if you then insert something like, well, well, maybe if you just would calm down a little bit and I'm going to react to that as a, as a, as a, as a threat, as, as a, oh, oh, you're telling me to calm down. That's all the reinforcement my body needs to stay in my same behavior. I've ignored everything else you've said and I've just cued into these trigger words or these arousal words, things that were going to get my attention. Now, as we talked about, my inside, which is angry, frustrated, stressed, now I've been given an external cue to match those things together. And I can use my old strategy, and it makes sense. But if you say, hey, calm down, and I actually listen to you, and I take that breath, and I say, what was I reacting to? It may be that there was absolutely something completely unrelated that caused this disconnect. But you have to kind of practice and then use them in those moments because otherwise your body wants to default back to the quickest solution. It doesn't want to stay stressed out any longer than it has to or it wants to look for a reason to do something about that stress. Sometimes run, sometimes fight in the simplest terms. Yeah. It's really, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to what you just said in terms of, you know, whether something just fuels an argument, if you will, versus um, something that makes us pause and say, wait a second, how did we end up in this, you know, going down this path? And, you know, as I'm listening and I, you know, think of all the things that, 
you know, I've tried, for example, um, you know, meditation, deep breathing, and then in the moment, you know, how often do I do it? You know, it makes me wonder how much of that is trainable? Like how much can we, I mean, that's probably a very hard question because there's so much individual difference. And I would, so I'm going to, I'm going to try to maybe take a slightly more clinical approach because I don't want to make assumptions because I I think that these things are trainable as long as, is we control where we can make certain assumptions. So I, I use sort of more of these polar cases because to me it helps make the point. But if you're, if you have someone who's PTSD, who's really operating kind of in this, what we would call kind of this limbic very emotional fight or flight zone that's sort of their default that means that activity kind of in these higher trainable areas of our brain to kind of figure out the complexity and nuances of of when you know uh, how to properly meditate how to properly monitor what's going on in my body because if, if i'm meditating i can think about my thoughts and i can take the time to sit here that that grants the fact that i'm not under a, a, a threat while i'm sitting there right in order for me to sit quietly in a room and feel safe that that makes an assumption that I am able to sit in the room quietly and that I'm not under a threat, right? But if I if I happen to have PTSD and I happen to be in an environment where I always kind of feel as if something may happen to me, then that's a lot harder for me to sit and try to engage those higher order cognitive pathways that are kind of necessary for a lot of your meditation approaches because it's saying why are you sitting here thinking about your thoughts? <laughs> this is your body communicating when you really need to be figuring out what's going on in the environment. Why are you stressed out? Something's going on. Something's telling you that you're stressed out. Something's going to get you. And you have to, the body's constantly trying to get you to deal with that. And because it's kind of caught in this kind of reciprocal memory, trauma-coded stress loop, it's very hard to kind of move out of that. So if we're going to talk about meditation, it's going to grant that you have the ability to engage, you know, more often than not, kind of in these higher ordered processes, Again, so that you can explore yourself. Part of meditation is exploring your emotions, exploring your feelings and thoughts about stuff and recognizing that thoughts are not, I mean, I guess in the emotional term, they're not you, that this is just kind of, you know, they, they only have value if you give them to them. But if we think about how we communicate, we think about how we are alerted to things, it, it is internally and externally. And so in meditation is asking you to shut those things off. So it just requires about three or four times more effort for someone if, if they're kind of existing in this very, very high stress state or with some type of a, a disorder like PTSD. So yes and no. I think it's trainable insofar as that type of processing, that type of internal surveying is really a regulatory way that you, you, know, you and your brain and how you interact with the world as long as it makes sense. I mean, for some people, they, they tell you they've never meditated before, don't miss it, don't want it, and they have other strategies that they may use. And when they try to meditate, it actually creates anxiety. Now, some people will say, well, that's because you don't like being quiet, you don't like being still. That's probably true for some, and I think for other people, that's just not the way that they regulate themselves. And that's why there's a diversity of different therapies. There's a diversity of things that we can, maybe that are on offer that that persons can try, and not all of them are going to necessarily work for you. So it's hard to say. Um, I think meditation does make an assumption that what we would call maybe top-down, that you're, you're able to modulate your lower-ordered system, maybe through respiration, from kind of this higher cognitive state versus maybe, maybe interrupting it at a, quietly, a, a slightly different level. You know, some people have to do something in the moment. When you, when you see someone punch a wall, when they're really upset, th- there may or may not be something 
that maybe prevent that person from being able to get a lot out of a med- meditation. What they needed to do when they're feeling stressed out is to move, to act, to do something to get that stress away from them. That would have kind of suspended kind of your sort of meditation moments. So it's trainable, but there's certain people that are harder to train and certain people that it may or may not be as much value to, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Oh, that's all very helpful. You know, our time is about up. Is there anything that you think people should know about heart rate variability or how to use it that um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I, I mean, I would just reiterate that you know, just when you're if, if, if you're doing a continuous heart rate variability and you're watching it every day, just make a note of your activity level. Make notes of your environment. Make notes of the that you're you know the foods you're eating. Um, you know, and anything like that, because those things can kind of create minor disturbances in your heart rate variability. And if you're not keeping up with those, you may find yourself maybe misinterpreting kind of what it's telling you. But generally speaking, you know, flexible heart rate variability is kind of the goal for us. And so if you're using it just to say, generally the health of my autonomic nervous system seems okay because I'm spending more time in parasympathetic states, if you will, and spending more time in this flexible heart rate variability as a baseline, then that's probably a good thing more often than not. And it's a good goal. I mean, it's it's good to kind of use it as a way to challenge yourself. Some of the vets would create something they called battle breathing, and they would use heart rate variability measures, and they would, when they got really stressed out, they would, they would pretend like they were having a battle with their breath, and they would create this kind of system of breathing, and they would use it multiple times over months and they would start to notice their heart rate variability changing and it would shift into this more flexible state quicker by dint of kind of doing this battle breathing exercise. Oh, that's really helpful, you know, and very intriguing to actually measure what we oftentimes try and figure out intuitively or just ask ourselves, you know, how am I handling this or, you know, is this too much stress? Is it hurting me? What's going on in my body in response? So a very nice, um, you know, potential measurement to be objective about how we're doing. So, um, Chance, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation about heart rate variability. I really appreciate you joining. Thank you so much for having me. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.